in a slightly different tone than our usual shows, I wanted to create a show for Sundays in which we can take a slightly more laid-back approach to the world of business, finance, and anything that powers the economy. And I thought we'd do so in a unique way, that we'd tell our tales through the stories of great men and women who have built empires, either in America or Titanic Industries in Europe. And the best name that I could think of, and the fitting title for all the people that we will be talking about, has been the creation of American empires and Euro Titans. And I thought, what better way to start off the inaugural episode than by talking about a man who, in many respects, is larger than life, and who has created a business that has gone on long past his life and created a legacy that even kings wish they could create. Yes, we'll be starting off our first episode talking about the illustrious J.P. Morgan and 10 points that I think we can pull out of his life that we can relate to our modern business and how we go about our daily lives. Now, we may not all be born to the same prosperity that J.P. Morgan was. He was born up in New England, great region of the country, in 1837 to the founder of Aetna Insurance. You might have heard of them, largely health insurance company if you haven't. Um, and to a, he was the son of a poet and the son of a businessman. And this created an interesting dynamic because on the one hand, JP grew up understanding how important money is to the function of a business. But on the other hand, as a sickly child, he spent a lot of time at home. And while he spent that time at home, he spent a lot of time with his mother and grew a fascination with the arts. And throughout his life, we'll see times where he spent great sums of money not to acquire more wealth, but to appreciate art and help others appreciate it as well. And this is our first point. Yeah, I know it's so soon, but it's so key to understanding the difference in how we perceive those who have money and how the great ones actually live. See, we usually think of businesses and art as really opposites, that the artists may go unnoticed in their own time. You know, you think of Emily Dickinson or you think of um, some of the other great artists who died and later their art became recognized as great, but they never reaped the benefits of it in their lifetime. And we think of businesses as larger than life and these captains of industry as people who have no time for arts because they are simply not profitable. And yet, most of our greatest men studied them intently. You can look at the Vanderbilts good friend of J.P. Morgan, uh, as we'll see later in his life. You can you look at Carnegie, who built great foundations with his wealth. And you can look at, of course, J.P. Morgan, who 
used the arts to study just what it means to to have a human experience that he was very interested in sort of the the art of the day you had in his day and as a kid you had the especially in the united states you had the romanticism movement you had the existentialism movement you had uh later in his life and and towards the end of his life you had the um impressionism movement you had the explosion of all the different types of art it wasn't just the baroque paintings anymore though those are still wonderful and beautiful and and morgan did have an appreciation for them it showed that behind all of the social statuses are still people who were trying to figure out what it means to to leave a legacy and to paint the world as they see fit and this leads right into our second point that we see so many social media posts you know where you've got the guy who says he's very wealthy and he's got the lamborghini or he's got the jet he's got the nice house and the pretty girlfriend and all of the things socially that we i'd use to identify someone who's made it and those have no moral qualities in and of themselves, but somebody who's truly interested in the arts, I believe, understands this fact. And I believe J.P. Morgan understood this fact, that he, while he lived lavishly in his later days, and he built many ornate buildings, and had many possessions, that we'll see so often that he, through his threads of life that he was never all consumed with business and things, that his appreciation for the arts, for him, gave his life a, a sense of purpose. And in those early years, while he may not have been the best student, people always recognized him as, as an intellectual, that he had a keen eye for mathematics, but also that he understood how to describe the world around him. Not in his language, which notoriously JP was very gruff, kind of blunt, you know, New Englander. <laughs> he, uh, he didn't sugarcoat a whole lot of things. And yet, his appreciation for the arts showed an understanding at a deeper level of the interactions uh, between human beings. And it gives his purpose in life and his achievements so much more depth than just saying what it is, that it really shows his why and, and that he was willing to find a how. And when you understand this point about him, that even though he was born into wealth and and he could have been like so many others who are born into wealth in our day that squander it, that don't ever really find a purpose in life, that's perhaps because he was such a sickly child and um, suffered with, with seizures and 
and that he he began to to value life at a at an early age, but he didn't let this soften his heart to the point where he could be run over. In fact, he was a very good negotiator and someone who we'll see later was great at raising capital and producing things for others. But it shows us how important the arts are. Now, I understand we may have overemphasized them in public education. I always say, you know, in my experiences, I didn't need to take three years of art to realize I wasn't good at it in high school. Uh, yet, they're still important in the sense that we need to under use them to understand and, and play out scenarios without actually engaging in them. That they are a visual representation of the battleground of ideas. That the fire and brimstone that comes out of debate can be displayed through art. That being said, art also doesn't need to say anything in the sense that it doesn't need to be provocative, but... If it simply shows the beauty or depravity of the world around it, it can lead whoever is viewing it to a conclusion. And I think this point is clear is clear throughout J.P. Morgan's life that we need to have an understanding of ourselves if we're truly going to be wealthy. And you combine someone who understands who they are and understands the world around them. You combine them with wealth and you truly have someone powerful. And as, as J.P. grew older, he, really, he took his mathematics uh, and his, his instinct for it, and he applied, started to apply that to business. Now, his father, being slightly higher in social standard, uh, actually took a job uh, for a bank over in London. And I was here, this is around the 1850s, where J.P. Morgan uh, went to study in Europe, first uh, staying in the United Kingdom, but then moving to Switzerland to study school, uh, study in a school over there, in which he became fluent in French, and obviously began to, from his, his artistry standpoint, took notice of the, the art history that was all around him. Of course, if you know your geography, even at the time, the Italian sub-states were right below Switzerland. France was right over to the right. Uh, he took this time as a young adult, now nearing his 20s, to study what he needed to to become proficient in business, but also to take the time to appreciate what was around him. But his father, and we can't understate this, his father did not want to, and his father being a younger man, obviously there might have been a little ego here, but his father didn't want to simply give him a job because he was his son. And what I mean by this is he felt that JP had to earn his way because his father had earned his way. And the bank had a smaller branch in the deep south of the United States. And JP was somebody who longed, had longed to return to the United States. And so, in its most basic form, it can be described as nepotism, but his father said, you're going to work as a bank clerk. Not a, not a uh, 
prestigious job, not someone who, when we think of the name Morgan, we, we think of as a, as a lowly blank bank clerk. But his father decided that he was going to learn the value of, of working. And JP, to some extent, probably needed that because he wasn't the best student in school. And his teachers repeatedly say that it wasn't because of intellect, but it was just apathy, that he, he didn't really care. He was off studying his art or he was doing math equations. He, he didn't really care uh, all that much about making a good grade. And I think, rightly, his father thought that this could really screw him up. Of course, living in London, I'm sure he saw plenty of people who had less potential than JP were strung out on opium or alcoholics or, you know, into something. You had the burgeoning Industrial Revolution. You, it was already taking hold in the United Kingdom. And so naturally, his father wanted the best for his son. But he was going to have to prove it. And so in the mid-1850s, J.P. went to Louisiana to start as a bank clerk. And this is really the third point that I want to make. And I think it tells us something about people who have made it and who have kids. And I'm sure you knew them growing up because I knew them as well. Kids who pretty much have everything that they could need, that they don't have to develop an instinct to survive. You see people who grow up in rough neighborhoods or not the best home situations and they make something of themselves and they they give back to the world and they do good for the world. And you see kids who have a nice home and a nice family and, and a successful mother or a successful father or both parents being successful, when you see them either not amount to much or uh, waste a lot of funds attempting to quote-unquote find themselves. And I think I think we all need that little, you know, kick in the pants at some point. I remember uh, earlier this year, actually, uh, with this whole coronavirus lockdown, I knew that I didn't really know how to react in some cases because I didn't have a whole lot of uh, online leads and that kind of stuff for my own business. So I was feeling a little low and, and I, I made a contact with, with somebody who I look up to, um, someone who was a, a former Marine service veteran. And I just asked him uh, to lunch and he gave me the, the dressing down that I needed. And since then I've got a great new motivation and lease on life. Sometimes you need that. And I think JP not being handled or handed this job and his father basically saying, you know, make it, a, if you can't make it as a bank clerk, you know, you can go live in the U.S. and, and not bother me anymore. And it shows us that you can give a child all the tools in the world, but it's about the opportunities, whether or not they take them, that's important. But something else showed here. Something that I think makes J.P. Morgan unique. And something that maybe is a little bit more subtle than uh, is, an, is really thought about our greatest banker. And that's that he could sell. He understood mathematics. He understood how to make a profit. 
but he could also sell. And that probably comes from his understanding of the arts, that he had some intuitive knowledge about human nature and how to deal with people and negotiate well. Because uh, there's this story about how in the late 1850s, I believe we're in 1858 here, he sees this... Uh, big old ship and you know those old three duck three deckers you see in like the uh, pirates of the caribbean they were military ships in the 1700s and then now they're mostly merchant ships by the 1800s but they still got you know the wind sails and uh that crazy new idea about using coal to power engines that, that's still a little far off so so you can imagine this this massive ship with with, with these crates of, of of different materials all being loaded uh, out into Louisiana, docks, and there's one of the merchants on that ship who's selling coffee. Now, by this point, we're a little bit away from the race for Africa, but, you know, we've got, we're nearly nearing the apex of imperialism. We have these now established colonial empires for over 100 years at this point. So global trade is really starting to pick up. So you have these coffee uh, beans from... South America that have made their way up to the United States, but this this merchant's trying to offload them, and JP goes up to him, and he's now somebody who, at this point, he's worked hard enough and worked his way up a little bit that he has some leeway with his superiors. That if he makes a judgment, he can he has the ability to make a judgment call and not get instantly fired for it. And this guy is, is essentially at this point selling at a discount because there's no demand for the coffee that he's selling. And the story varies. There's some people that, that claim that uh, this merchant really didn't have anything so, uh, set up in terms of who he was going to sell this coffee to um, or these coffee grinds to, grinds, beans to. <laughs> and uh, there are other people who say that whoever he was going to sell it to backed out. Either way... He's got all this product, and he needs somebody to help him move it. And so JP walks up, essentially, and buys all this stock. Now, he's in banking at this point. He's working with his father's bank company. So what are they? What business do they have selling coffee, right? So he walks up, and he bargains with this guy, and he essentially agrees to wire him company funds in exchange for his coffee products. And JP turns around, and because of the clientele that the bank has, the access to customers, he turns around and sells the these crates of coffees essentially individually for a profit, and a massive profit, um, which it's unknown if he kept the profit or if he uh, put it back into the, the company for you know using their funds. And this story, or at least this part of his life, ends with, um, great recognition. Actually, he's going on in the 1860s to strike out and form his own business uh, or bank, really, named J.P. Morgan and Company. And this was this really was in, in emboldened by this this story that he felt that he was adequately trained in uh, banking knowledge and monetary theory at that point, and that he could also sell. And I think this brings us to our fourth point here, where production speaks louder than anything else. That really, when 
when you think about it, that that everyone could have given him just given him praise because they were you know trying to win favor with his father, or they could have given him praise because he uh, apparently had a, a great work ethic when he arrived in the United States, or they could have given him praise because he found a way to make money uh, in a situation that many people, I'm sure, would just walk by. But when he had the idea to start his own banking uh, uh, firm, and he had that I, that 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 spark of ingenuity that came from production. So it's not just that other people recognize that your production puts you above others. It's that in yourself it also creates a sense of of worth. That production can be a motivating factor, and that more than that, ingenuity beats production. So as much as we value production, as much as others value production, as much as it can be a motivating factor for you, ingenuity and having your own unique way of going about something is almost double the motivation to go out and be the best that you can be at something, whatever that thing may be. But I also want to make the point that this ingenuity is only valued in a free society. Now, JP, at this point, could have been in Europe. And in Europe at that time, you still had the Germanic countries, some of which were absolute monarchies, other, uh, others that had some sort of uh, constitutionalism. Uh, you still had kings in Italy, and you had kings in Austria, and you had kings in Russia... And the only free societies at that point were the United Kingdom and France, obviously the, the United States. But pure production, and you can see this in, in older, um, older kingdoms in Europe, that even if you went back 100 years to the 1700s, you could see that you know, people would say, oh, you know, this guy produces great for the crown, and he's you know, a good worker for the king, and... Any ingenuity outside, whether it's ingenuity in the arts, whether it's Galileo and his telescope, in societies that aren't free, you can see that actually punished because it's not controllable by those at the top. But in a free society in the United States, ingenuity is praised because it because the individual stressed to the point where ingenuity and successful ingenuity and something that improves the lives of, uh, of everybody and is easily accessible is praised as that becomes distributed, that there's no gov top-down government that's trying to control people. People are just trying to make it best for themselves and best for those around them. And that drives ingenuity. That creates a near-utopian society. And it's my contention that JP wouldn't have been nearly as successful if he was born anywhere else in the world, other than maybe the United Kingdom. But even then it would have still been much harder to succeed than for him than if he was born in the United States. But it, became, it was here that as he was building his empire in the 1860s that he actually took his first wife. And 
it was one of these chance things. I think they met in a social circle, and, and it was really, it seemed to observers as pretty natural, but unfortunately, as it was, you know, the 1860s, uh, she came down with tuberculosis, and they had moved to Europe to, in 1862, uh, back to France to try and give her fresh air, essentially, to try and and clear it up, and also to get away from the Civil War in the United States. And that didn't help, and unfortunately she passed uh, in the 1860s. But again, JP uh, took was given the opportunity to partner with somebody who had, uh, an Englishman who had known his father. Now his father's been in England for uh, a decade now. And JP's reaction to his wife's death was to really envelop himself in work and you can see this with people who don't take the time to grieve uh that they may uh take to one activity and just use it to try to take their mind off of the fact that they're not grieving and his father recognized this and thought that this would be a good um opportunity to introduce jp to his partner dabney who uh was part of the banking firm in the United Kingdom. And this was also a chance for JP to kind of come out of his shell and, and socialize a little bit, but it did also help him and it will help him later with connections uh, in, in Europe and with influential circles in uh, countries outside the United States. And this becomes very, very important later on in JP's life. But here's a point that I don't want to go under the radar, and this may be the most important point that we're going to make today. That through his overseas money and, and what will become his other interests, he took the time to master his craft. At this point, JP's been in the banking industry either as a clerk or as somebody who is making waves uh, now for over a decade and a half. He's in his mid-30s, and he's done nothing but banking. And I see all the time, whether it's social media or, or people trying to sell you on some multi-level marketing product or something, they talk about side hustles and, and things that you do to make money on the side. And I can respect that, that some people, when they're trying to build a business, if they don't have enough capital up front... They've got to make end meet somehow. And, and I, I understand that and I can respect that to a certain degree. But for people who are just after the dollar, even if they have a moderately successful business that's you know paying the bills at least, some, sometimes you can see them get dragged into these side hustles. But the people who truly make it, master their craft, master their business, find out how to make money with it, then multiply the money. And we can see through JP and, and others who we will study that it became incredibly important for them to figure out how to make money first, then multiply it, and then get into your side hustles, quote-unquote. I, man, I hate that buzzword. But Without those pieces, 
I believe that we may never heard the name J.P. Morgan or it would be a bit of an obscure name. Because without it, if he's just going after the dollar and he's bouncing from one thing to the next thing to the other thing, trying to get all these side hustles and other projects going and he's just, he never gets any traction, then he becomes somebody who doesn't master anything. And therefore he's not unique because there are limited people who can truly master and understand a topic. And if he's not unique, he doesn't make the kind of money that he will end up making in his life. And this is very important. Now, Dabney and uh, JP will go on throughout the 1860s to continue to make and multiply money through the process of, of modern, through the modern banking process, using leverage, uh, taking out uh, rather conservative uh, uh, investments, uh, making good deals. Now, they did have a couple failure, failures, which we won't get into all that much, um, as most of them occurred later on in, in JP's life, but um, throughout the rest of really the 1860s and through the majority of the 1870s, uh, as he moved back to the United States and was able to expand his business, JP became the master of making a business, not just a banker, that he actually created a business and, and began to understand the marketing aspect of that. And though uh, I know his marketing was different, he didn't have computers and social media, he didn't have click funnels, he didn't have, uh, he, you know, he had pen and paper and he had newspapers and not everyone could read. So his challenges were a bit different. Yet, it's as though he took the time in the 1850s through the 60s to master the banking and mechanics of money. And then he took another decade through the 1860s and 1870s to truly master how to make a business. And what's important is that he became known as somebody who was a master at raising capital because he could go back and though his father passed in the early 1870s, he could still make those connections and he did a good job at fostering those relationships and people who knew his father and had a respect for his father uh, began to respect JP in his own right because it seemed as though he had a Midas touch, that he just had an innate sense of what was going to work and what didn't and that he was a great negotiator and that his ability to raise capital for projects that others had and then make money on that investment is truly something that distinguished him as somebody who you wanted as a friend, but you surely didn't want as an enemy. And here's a sixth point. Before we get into where he goes from being someone who was rich to somebody who's truly wealthy, is that capital is key. And that nothing runs without it. And I understand you say, well, of course, we're in a capitalist economy. We're in a, a JP was in the United, uh, United States, United Kingdom, France, all these capitalist countries. I don't care what your economic system is. Capital is key. The government needs it. You need it. Businesses need it. Everybody needs a source of income. You can't make money without having it. But it doesn't mean that you always have to use your hands or use your brain to do it. 
some people know how to negotiate. And JP could pull from his banking contacts, pull from his business contacts, find people who would be the right fit to invest in certain ventures and make a percentage off of that agreement. Maybe it's only 1% or 2%, but if he didn't put any capital into it, was able to raise capital for a successful business and then make a percentage off of it, I mean, that's a great deal. You put no money into something and you make a couple thousand, that's a win, right? And for us to understand that, look, capital is everywhere. You can go to the bank, or if you work with me, you can have a private reserve strategy. But you also got friends that got capital, right? And maybe it's not a lot. Maybe it's not the, the type JP was hanging around with. You know, maybe you don't have friends who have millions. But maybe you have friends that could help you raise five grand. Two and a half grand. A hundred bucks. Something. And... Perhaps instead of simply working that side hustle, maybe you take the time to raise capital beforehand. And, you know, make your estimations. Make sure you've got um, a business plan together, a true business plan together. You raise capital to cover those initial costs. And then you make your money. JP shows us that that's very plausible and also very important to success to use other people's money. Now we can see this because uh, he had eventually come into contact with William Vanderbilt who uh, essentially offered for him to buy a quarter of a million shares into uh, his railroad company. Now the Vanderbilts had made a lot of money in, in railroads. Uh, and JP was someone they thought of as worthy of being uh, uh, partners with them, essentially, in this venture. And JP became enthralled with the railroads. And he saw all the things that were going on around in at that time in this new industry. You had speculators and you had government money. You had situations where the government for military purposes needed railroads built between certain areas and you had people who would inflate the cost to get more money out of the government and then you know take some of the money for themselves and then also not really care about the efficiency of of the trains or if they got where they were going on time or if the railroads was built in a timely manner and then you had the speculators who thought that a railroad uh, between two states would be necessary and they didn't deal with other speculators they just wanted the money and the potential to become as wealthy as the Vanderbilts. And this led to railroads that were mismanaged and inefficient, and they didn't care if the trains worked right or uh, if they showed up on time or, you know, essentially the public be damned. They, they didn't care about the people that were going to be using this transportation. And JP saw the opportunity to modernize these systems, these rail systems, to make them much more efficient than they were and to make a good deal of money doing so. And this is the seventh point I want to make here, that opportunities are given to you. They are. 
if you if you make yourself worthy of them, opportunities are given to you. But the great ones take advantage of it, and the great ones excel when they are given an opportunity. And this is when J.P. Morgan goes from someone who's just rich to somebody being wealthy. And I don't mean just because he made over $100 million, which is a lot of money today. It was really a lot of money in the 1870s and 1880s uh, while we were still on the gold standard. But he became a pioneer, and he became someone who became a visionary, who, who was able in the Pacific to connect Montana and California and all these new territories up by train and trains that were reliable and showed up on time and that farmers who needed to make a profit on their crops and people who depended on their crops to create products could depend on these trains to get where they needed to be on time. And they made the country that much more efficient. And he successfully outdueled the speculators and the government financers because he was just that much better. And we could see this paralleled uh, today. You see Elon Musk and his ability to go to space for a fraction of the cost that the government said that it would take. And he's able to take us to that new frontier. Now, it's in a much different place than, than Morgan was taking us. But that being said, in his day, the Wild West, that was the new frontier. And Morgan was a trailblazer, and he was someone who was a pioneer. And he never gets enough credit for it, because he got rich. And it's almost as if, today, in the stock market, we need a new J.P. Morgan. Someone who is able to outduel the speculators and bring some stability to the market. And I understand the market's a little different in the sense that you have uh, larger companies that are much more stable, that give that do give dividends, but not everyone is as talented as JP was going into a business that needed some help uh, and for a price coming in, fixing them up, selling the business, buying the business, fixing them up, selling them, essentially flipping the business, which is almost what people are trying to do when they speculate because a business may be losing money, uh, even if it's publicly traded. But everyone says, ooh, this is a great idea. Let's let's finance it, and this could really take off. And everyone jumps in on the stock, and the stock price shoots up. And then people say, oh, whoa, that's too much. And then they pull out, and then the stock price collapse. And we go through this cycle over and over again. You saw it with Facebook this year. That's not Morgan's approach. Heck, that's not Warren Buffett's approach. Someone who is a modern-day version of J.P. Morgan. That he sat back, he looked at financials, he looked at the important parts of a business, and he improved them. And he made a, a tidy sum off of that. But he earned it. And, of course, he was hated. As the populist movement and the Industrial Revolution progressed in the United States, he became under fire from people from Williams Jennings, William Jennings Bryant on the right to people on the hard left, um, you know, your Eugene Debs and your socialists and your communists talking about how much of a robber baron he was. And granted, the Vanderbilts created a monopoly on the railroad systems, that they charged en enormous tolls, which jacked the price up of everything, and it really hurt the farmers, 
Uh, I understand that. And I'm not saying that there weren't grievances or that everything was rosy. But, the, uh, but in, in many cases, it felt as though when we reached the 1890s and JP has fully ascended to being this power broker that is one of the richest Americans ever, that's when per, public perspective on him changed. And it started in 1893 with the panic that hit the banks, that U.S. Treasury uh, gold reserves were low. And the ensuing panic where people just pulled money out of the banks, where people uh, were doing so in order to protect their savings because uh, in those days there were... Uh, notoriously, a lot of bank runs where customers would think that their bank was on the verge of collapsing, which you know still happens today, but um, not to the extent that you would have these all these smaller banks uh, that you did in the 1890s. And they would go and they would take their money out because if the bank closes, you know there goes your savings, and uh, all these people would pull their money out, and then that hurts the cap the capital for the bank to turn around and make loans and. It, the resulting it essentially creates a, a spiral for the bank that can be incredibly deadly. And so you have the panic of 1893 where you have the U.S. Uh, expansion and economic boom after the Civil War, which was based on a lot of uh, products coming from South America, uh, raw materials mostly, and of course from other colonial empires of the day. And... Uh, you had a lot of people, again, a lot of speculation, a lot of speculators buying into certain products as uh, it's apparently human nature to do. And when uh, when the prices dropped, notably in Argentina, a number of, due to social and economic unrest, a lot of prices dropped, a lot of speculators pulled out, so the um, a lot of the securities plummeted, and it had a lot. You had a lot of foreign investors switch to buying uh, gold-backed securities, and this created a uh, a panic where where suddenly the U.S. Treasury uh, didn't have nearly as much gold or silver as uh, it once did, and uh, followed by a, a a crash in London and the United Kingdom. And th these issues just compounded on each other to where uh, people became worried about the state of the U.S. government and that the U.S. government needed uh, money. We didn't have the same debt principles that we do today. We didn't have the Federal Reserve, so we weren't just printing money and we weren't, um, you know, letting the government go into trillions of dollars worth of debt. And the government turned to J.P. Morgan. Now, Morgan was able to get a deal in which he, in exchange for 30-year favorable bonds, essentially gave the government money, bailed out the U.S. government, much like, well, a little different than how the Fed operates. But we get a glimpse at what life would be like if we didn't have the Federal Reserve. Because this happened again in 1907, and that was the last panic that eventually spurred the creation of the Federal Reserve because you had a lot of people both in elite circles and among the populist crowd that saw wealthy 
financiers like J.P. Morgan as though that their bailout of the government was uh, buying off politicians. And perhaps in some cases you have, uh, again, notably with the Vanderbilts, uh, you have wealthy families and people that uh, were buying political favors, but that was more on a lower level basis. You know, infamously in, in Cincinnati, you had local wealthy merchants that were doing the same things uh, in the 1880s and 1890s. When J.P. Morgan comes in to bail out the banks and in, in government in 1893 and in 1907, this was done because he could make money on the bonds. And 30 years later, at a at a reasonable rate and very profitable rate, the government would pay him back. You didn't have the same debt controls that you do in the modern day. But this is when public perception of Morgan changes and he becomes one of the bad guys. And it always brings me back to that quote. This is usually aimed at socialists, but I think it can be ascribed to anyone who sees the wealthy as somehow corrupt because of their wealth. That they don't care about the poor, they just hate the rich. Because you often see these politicians vying for public office and political power saying that, you know, you, people are poor because you're so rich. But the retort should always be, you don't care about the poor, you just hate the rich. Because you can see the effects of, of technology um, in JP's day with the Industrial Revolution that it created lots of new money. It created lots of new avenues of how to make new money. And it disrupted society. And you can see that in the, in, in the rise of populism in uh, the West, in the United States. You can see it with the rise uh, in the Northeast, with the rise of the socialists. Again, Eugene Dems will become much more prominent after J.P. Morgan's death. You can see it with the election of Teddy Roosevelt. You can see it even before him with the election of uh, McKinley that both of them were much more on the progressive side. And that didn't happen by accident. And nowadays, you see a reaction on both the left and right. I think Trump would be your example of a populist and you would... I mean, it's pretty obvious that the left, as mo their most vocal supporters are socialists or outright communists that are attempting to take over the, the Democratic Party. And a lot of their anger is in reaction to a lot of the new wealth that was created through the technology and internet boom of the 1990s and the 2000s. And now that we're in the 2020s, it's almost like the Industrial Revolution where it first hits and it creates a lot of new money like in the U.S. in the 1860s and then by the 1880s, 1890s, people are like, okay, we have all this wealth. We have the, all these societal changes and the internet changed society the way the Industrial Revolution changed society. And you have people that are figuring out, okay, where, where do our morals align now? And they usually turn their guns to those who made money off of it as some sort of morally corrupt, profiteering uh, bad guys. And that's not necessarily true in JP's case or in the modern day. That's not necessarily true. I don't think, you know, 
uh, Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or a lot of the the people who have made money um, through the internet and through technology, I don't think that they're inherently wrong or evil just because they created something that we all use. But that brings us to our final point. And as we wrap up here, we have to balance the power of the collective versus the power of the individual. Because J.P. Morgan, at the end of his life, had a net worth of $138 million, which is a lot of money now. Not saying it's not, but think of how much it was in 1913. This man was so powerful that not once but twice he bailed out the U.S. government. And we tend to think of the government as a, regardless of, of, of state uh, or country that we're in, we like to think of the government as a, as a representation of the collective, as a concrete example of, of the feelings and mutual feelings that we all have and how, that we, how we would like to see our society structured. Now, it's a little different in the United States, but we're still dealing with, especially now, and you can see it with the lockdowns, and you can see it with the protests, and you can see it with everything that's going on. How do we balance the rights of the collective versus the rights of the individual, and which is more important to us as a society? And though these questions always come up when technology disrupts the society at large. But then we also have to wonder, how much power does the, the Fed wield? Should we have individuals and private banks bailing out governments or should we have a centralized bank that does it should we have a currency that is on a gold standard and therefore requires the government to go out to private financiers or do we have a fiat currency that is only valuable because it exists, which is a conundrum in and of itself. But I'll leave you with this. And through all the points we've made, there is one comical clip uttered by the famous or infamous John D. Rockefeller. And to think, he wasn't even a rich man. I'll leave you that with the inaugural episode of Euro Titans and American Empires. This was J.P. Morgan's life and the 10 points that make him a great man. This was a tribute to the greatest American banker in the history of this country and probably one of the greatest of all time, a man whose company still lasts into the 21st century. And hopefully from his life, his experiences, and his triumphs, we can all take a little bit away from him and just hope to gain the mastery that he once had.